morning, Mike. How are you doing? Good, Kevin. Good to see you this morning, bright and early. Hey, I want to ask the question this time. I've got a question for you. I've been thinking about thinking about the differences in how music is consumed nowadays versus when we got started because it's it's a very different experience, especially for my younger students of music than what we had. And yes, I did was thinking about you you and I being from different generations. But you know, when I first started becoming interested in being a professional musician, compact discs were brand new. Um, in fact, I remember buying, hoarding my money up to, to buy this Sony Walkman, which it probably weighed like 15 pounds. It was solid metal. You were supposed to run with it, but you know, if, if it jiggled too much of the, the CD would skip, but it was cheaper than buying one of the audiophile CD players. But I bought it just because all this jazz was coming out on CD. And of course, um, CDs are pretty much dead now. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to be releasing anything else on CD. It's all going to be on streaming. But, you know, I also have a whole bunch of LPs and stuff. What was it What was it like when you were first around? Were you buying LPs? Oh, yeah. Everything was on uh, vinyl. Um, we bought... Uh, well, well, the way I started... Um, my interest in performing, in singing, was my brother, My one of my older brothers, uh, was doing some singing around St. Louis, and uh, he was um, very uh, much into the popular singers of the day. Frank Sinatra, Johnny Mathis, Tony Bennett, just listening to those albums uh, and singing along is really how I learned how to sing. And, uh, and were these singles like 45s or were they no, long play they, records? They were, they were LPs, um, albums, and but we also had 45s at the time. Uh, All right, you know, yeah. some of the, some of the, you know, the, the hit, the, the hit songs of the era for the, with the, uh, the more rock oriented types of groups like turtles or whatever those came out on 45s and there was the hit side and then there was always a second side that sometimes was kind of a throwaway type of tune because they were you know selling that one one hit right sure but did that you, was uh, that did you did you ever have a 78 <laughs> you know my parents had 78s and we had the record, uh, the the record, what we call the record player, that we used at the time, and had it had different speeds on it. And uh, you could, um, of course, there was the you know the later version, so that just had the thirty three and the forty five. And the way you played a forty five was you put a little device there and uh, slid it over the nub in the middle of the. Yeah, I know. So we used to. That's one of these popular things you see online. Do you, if you remember this, you're, you know, you're a boomer or something. Well, they show those yeah. little circles yeah. that you would put in the middle of the, of the forty-five, so that you could put on the same spindle as as an LP. You know, I had. I don't know why I have this old Marantz, um record player. Um. It even had a little knob that you could fine tune how fast it was spinning. 
but it had a setting of 15. So we had 45, 70, uh, 45, 33, and 15. Wow. And when I was studying records, um, you know, I could put it on uh, the LP on, but set at 15, it would pay, play at a little less than half speed. And it would drop everything. It would be half as fast. It would drop everything an octave. Uh-huh. But um, you could still kind of get an idea of what was going on. You could, uh, you know, you could hear melodies a little slower and try to figure them out. I always yeah. think about the the, you know, early jazz musicians, Charlie Parker, uh, etc., where they were they only had seventy eights that were spinning so fast that uh, you know they couldn't just drop the needle where they wanted to. Oh yeah, right. You know, yeah. You my know, parents had a. In fact, I still have you know those things that you carry with you and never dig out of the storage room again, but they're, they're there. I still have a, a, a selection of those. And my wife, Linda, she has a bunch of them from, from her family. And uh, obviously there's nowhere, <laughs> there's nowhere we, we could find to play those, but they're sitting there, they're there. <laughs> well, you know, you know, it's just a, a, a different experience now. Um, I mean, the internet is, is, it's miraculous that I can just pick up my phone and and look at pretty much any song or any recording that's going to be on YouTube or on Spotify or something or being able to bring it up for students. But I, I, I find, you know, myself feeling like an old curmudgeon, but I miss two things about LPs in particular. Uh, number one, um, all of the written information that would come with the LP, the liner notes, that would usually be on the back. And then the artwork on front, which is just beautiful sometimes, you know, famous artists would often be the artist for for jazz records. Um, And then even when you would pull the LP out, it would be on a sleeve and that sleeve would have a list sometimes of all the other albums that that label had issued that year. And of course, when you when you listen to this music streaming, you usually don't get any of that. Did you have a relationship with the liner notes and stuff when you were when you were doing this stuff, Mike? Yeah, you know what what this makes me think of is, for example, the uh, the Beatles album Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band." Um, this the CD, you know, driving, put the CD in the in the CD player. And you hear the whole album and there's there's a thematic flow about the entire album from song to song so the songs are have relationships with each other there's an evolution of it the way they put these albums whole albums together um there was purpose in in doing that you know people forget like one of the things we lost from the transition from lp to cd is is they would plan with LPs um, by side so that they wanted the first song on side A and the first song on side B to be the two best songs. And of course, when you go to a CD, there's only one side. So you're you're if you're if you're having a product that was made for LP and then moved to CD, sometimes you were losing that sense of something, which isn't that uh-huh. important. 
And I always thought that was far outweighed by the fact sometimes you'd get a CD and have twice as many songs as you had on the LP. It would have all the outtakes. I have one rare LP, which a lot of people, it's so unusual. It's, um, it's a Branford Marcellus record called Trio GP. And you could either buy it as a single CD or as a two LP set. And this is one of the rare cases where the, the two LPs had more songs than the CD. <laughs> you know, you know an, another change that happened is the length of songs were easier because the math of getting how many minutes can be on the side of an LP is rather complicated. I mean, the ultimate limit is 20 minutes, but that's also uh -huh. affected by how much um, bass is in the recording. Because the more bass there is, the bigger the grooves need to be, and therefore the less space on that side. Um, if we go all the way back to Duke Ellington, um, when we only had 78s, which were limited around three minutes per side, he is, he made pretty much the first longer than three minute recording, which is a suite called black, brown and beige. And you had to flip, flip the 78 over to get the other, or maybe there was a second 78. But, you know, he he just didn't care that it was only three minutes long. And if you think about the difference between maybe classical and pop music, some of that is created by this three-minute limit because uh, most classical music lasts a little longer than three minutes. Therefore, it was difficult to record. But, you know, now that we're streaming, which is a completely new format, uh, we are losing the album concept. Mike, I have students at the university. Now I'm talking about, um, you know, adults who were born in the 21st century, 17, 18 year olds who um, have, are not familiar with using the term album in relationship to music. Yeah, like their I, album to them is, a, is like a folder on Instagram <laughs> yeah. where they put all their photographs. It's an interesting difference. And the way they consume it is different. They're much more interested in individual tracks, and um, I'm not I'm not old and grumpy enough to think that that's bad. I think things have just changed, and it's very possible that like people don't have to release because of the cost. They don't have to release a whole album at once. You know, they can now just re 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 release single after single after single after single. Right. Yeah. And. Um, have a different rate to it. It's I, I kind of think of it kind of like television, how it used to be um, in, a, in an inverse way. It used to be a, a TV show would have a different episode every week over a long period of time. And a lot of times now we get TV shows that have eight episodes and maybe you watch them all in one weekend and then right. wait a year and a half for the next season of Game of Thrones to come out, you know, that kind of thing. It's just, there's a lot of differences in how we're accessing all this information now. When You know, there's another side of this, though, too, um, that I've come across lately. There's a sort of a, a throwback movement where people are going back to LPs, right? Yeah, I believe um, last year was the first year that LPs outsold CDs um, uh, since, since the beginning of CDs. And, I mean, and my, if I do release something that's not streaming, it's got to be on LP. Yeah. 
And essentially, I think sure. the explanation is, is that the sound quality uh, can be better. Oh, my gosh. We're going to get into a big rabbit hole where people arguing about that. Yeah, I mean, audiophiles will say it's warmer, but, you know, the problem is a lot of these recordings that they're putting on LP now, they're taking them from the digital world. They're taking a digital master and then pressing it to vinyl, which it defeats the whole purpose of keeping it analog the whole time. Like right. once you convert it to digital, it's you can't go back. Yeah. So yeah, and each time you convert to a new format, you're bound to lose a little bit of of uh, something. Yeah, I, I, I don't. You know, I don't know how all of that works. I know that to my great surprise, CDs are not perfect. Either if you copy a CD over and over, it uses um, error correction in there as it deciphers the information to replicate it. So if you copy from one CD to another, but not from the master, and then copy that to another, there is going to be differences. Now, can can could I hear them? No, because I was copying CDs all the time. You know, uh, last year, Mike, I I. I did more house cleaning and I went through all my LPs and all my CDs and decided which ones I was going to keep. And, um, you know, I went down to just, just the ones that I thought were either not available streaming or that I had sentimental attachments to, um, in, in special ways. So, you know, I'm down to about a 10th of the collection I had before, but it was, it was heartbreaking. I couldn't give away, the CDs. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you know, know, they all ended up in a landfill somewhere, unfortunately. Yeah. In that vein, uh, too, I've had, oh, from time to time, somebody will tell me, say, look, I've got all these old, great old records, albums from the uh, 60s and 70s. And then, you know, the old 78, somebody the other night I was talking to say they have all this, this big pile of 78s from, from their parents, they said, now, can I sell those somewhere? I mean, would, who buys those things? And uh, I think, generally speaking, th these old records are, are are not marketable. I mean, at the university, we get people trying to donate it to us all the time. We have a room with, I don't know, about 10,000 LPs. We're, we're not taking accepting anymore at Georgia State, at least in the jazz department, we're not. And, um, I mean, there are going to be some in there that are worth some money. Mm -hmm. I mean, somewhere, pretty rarely, but overall, they're not worth anything anymore, sadly. Yeah, maybe if you had the, uh, uh, the first edition of uh, uh, the original cover with a clean album of Meet the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like people, there are collectors <laughs> who specialize this, and they know, like, there's this... There's a, there's a, there's, when they issued the Miles Davis record kind of blue, the very first pressing, there was a typo on the label. So they stopped it after, I think, 500 um, and had to start it again. And if you have one of those first 500, it's worth like, like a thousand dollars, you know, but that's still not a lot of money in <laughs> the big scope of things. Uh, you'd have the, the amount of time it would take to find that record is pretty huge, you know. What, what I'm more interested in is, is that you and I are able to have such a detailed conversation about just the medium 
that the music is delivered in and that our discussion about that will pretty much include everyone who's listening. Everyone who's listening will have some relationship to the way music is delivered to them. And that says a lot about the value that music has for everyone in their lives. You know, there, there's been a lot of concern about the, the streaming medium because when we first started streaming, everything needed to be digitally compressed into a smaller format with less detail in it so that it could, uh, you know, survive the, the stream across the internet without you having buffering and all this losing of sound. And we're still pretty much using that. There've been a couple of attempts to have a higher fidelity streaming engine put up, but people tend to just use the original. I think they're so used to hearing it in that format, but boy, there there is an audible difference between the streaming format of an MP3 and um, you know when you're listening to it at home on your actual devices with things. I mean, right now, uh, you know, we're recording on the audio, but you're wearing Dr. Beats headphones, which were designed specifically to make MP3s sound better, but not necessarily other music. You have any thoughts about that, Mike? Um, I just think that the, you know, that the, the, the necessity of evolution is just takes us to more utilitarian approaches, I think, to the music. You know, as you were talking about earlier, the fact that an artist can release a single and uh, market that and people have access to that without having to buy, you know, 12 other songs that maybe were just thrown together quickly to be able to market this one tune. So I guess from that perspective, uh, streaming is certainly uh, an advancement uh, in, in, in terms of providing access and getting your material out. Hey, Mike, have you heard of the musician Jacob Collier? And he's kind of a guy who started out primarily in the streaming world on YouTube as a teenager making videos where he would compose and sing all of the harmonies himself. And he'd have his head on the screen and like, nine different boxes like the Hollywood Square. Oh, yeah. Was, That's yeah. somebody that is is worth... Go look him up if you haven't heard of him and YouTube him and just watch and listen to one of his his uh, arrangements. It, uh, amazing multiple harmonies and and it's all him. Yeah, he's, he's doing something else. Well, it's going to be interesting to see... Um, if our next evolution of music distribution involves artificial intelligence in some way, hmm. it, it might be that we don't even pick what we're listening to, that the AI does it for us. Well, this was an interesting conversation. I think we learned something about the evolution of uh, how music is being delivered. 